0: Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McLarty. Tonight, we are going to talk about King Ahaz. Ahaz. And in so doing, we are going to look at three different books of the Old Testament. Because this is a good opportunity, another lesson, in how the Bible works. How is the Bible constructed and where do various prophets fit into the history of Israel and what was happening in Israel at that time. So we're going to start by looking at 2 Kings chapter 16. Ahaz was the king of the southern kingdom, king of Judah, and not a particularly good king. We're going to find out in 2 Kings why he was not a good king, but we're going to find out even more about him by looking at uh, 2 Chronicles. But also in the process, we're getting right up to that spot where even 2 Kings is going to include actual quotes and prophecies from Isaiah. Isaiah. So tonight we're also going to look at the book of Isaiah. We may be here till 10 o'clock, I don't know. So we're going to look at Isaiah prophesying about the very same things that we see in chapter 16 of the book of 2 Kings. Actually, it's going to be Isaiah 7 when we get there. I don't think that most people understand where Isaiah fits, and it helps tremendously to understand where he fits in history so that you can understand his prophecies, who he was talking to, what he was talking about. Isaiah seven is a mystery to most people because it does talk about Pekah and the son of Ramaliah and and if you're just approaching the book of Isaiah cold, well you have no idea what any of that means. But if you understand the history that is laid out for us in Second Kings and Second Chronicles, then the things that Isaiah is saying fit perfectly in that context. So we're going to kind of speed through as much as I can speed through anything. We're going to try to kind of speed through 2 Kings so that then we can go fill in all the blanks with 2 Chronicles and Isaiah. That's the plan for tonight. The other thing that you're going to notice as we look at these stories is not only are they archaeologically provable. Not only are they a part of human history, they're not limited to the Bible, but there is, as I just said, archaeology behind these that proves that these events actually did take place. The northern kingdom that was Israel was taken out of its land. Samaria became occupied by Gentiles after that. These are all things that we can show And actually in the history of the Assyrian nation and the uh, slaves that were in Assyria, there is plenty of indication that there were Israelites there. And so when we find out about the Assyrian captivity, it's not limited to what the Bible says about it. Human history also proves that these things happened. And then lastly, before we start reading, I also want to point out that the author of Second Kings and the author of the Chronicles and Isaiah the prophet all give God complete credit for everything that happens here. On the surface, if you were just looking at it, if you were watching it as an observer, it would look to you like, oh, well, that's just nations fighting against nations. That's just people arguing with people. But in fact, God takes credit for all of it because there's actually a cause. There's actually an offense against God that is finally reached its zenith. God is going to do something about it. And so these are not arbitrary things that just happened in the Middle East at some point. These are specific things that took place because God was orchestrating human history to bring about his will in keeping with the covenant that he made with Israel. And so don't think of these as arbitrary things, because they're not, and the authors tell you they're not. They say, God brought these enemies down. God did this. All right, let's start then in 2 Kings chapter 16. In the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, became king. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord his God as his father David had done. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel and even made his sons to pass through the fire. This is a a Canaanite form of worship. We've talked before about Molech, the particular god who we know from history was a metal god. And they would stoke the fires inside the belly of that idol. And he would have his hands outstretched. And when he had reached critical temperatures, they would put their babies, they would put their children into the hands of Molech. And they thought that the screaming of the babies as they died in their hands would somehow satisfy the anger of the gods. And God was very, very clear about, when you go into the land that I'm bringing you into, don't do like your neighbors. Don't worship the false gods. And for heaven's sake, don't send your children through the fire. And yet that is precisely what Ahaz did. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king. He reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. He did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord his God. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel and even made his son to pass through the fire according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had driven out from before the sons of Israel. And he sacrificed and he burned incense on the high places and on the hills And under every green tree. We've talked about that before. The worship that was taking place on the high hills and in the groves and under the trees was the worship of nature gods, the worship of Ishtar. These were all pagan religious practices that God specifically forbid. When you go into the land that I'm going to give you, the land flowing with milk and honey, Don't do what the people who were already there did and don't do what the surrounding nations do. Your worship has to be completely and utterly centered on me and our covenant and our law and my rules and my 613 ordinances, this is how you are supposed to live. And yet they had tumbled so far downhill That they had reached the point where even their king, who's supposed to be a representative of God to the people, is now encouraging the people to worship foreign gods. He sacrificed and burned incense on the high places, and on the hills, and under every green tree. And then Rezin, the king of Aram, which is also Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, the king of Israel came up to Jerusalem to wage war. And they besieged Ahaz, but they could not overcome him. Let's talk about this from a strategic viewpoint for just a moment. Assyria, as I said last week, is becoming a dominant power in the Middle East there. And Assyria is sort of northeast of Samaria and Syria, which are next-door neighbors, the Arameans. So they're operating as like a buffer zone between Assyria and Jerusalem. And so Syria and Israel make a deal. They get together, and the implication is that they're coming to Judah originally to say, join us in throwing off the Assyrians who are conquering at will and taking over this entire territory. King Ahaz doesn't seem interested in this. And as you're going to see in a moment, King Ahaz ends up making a deal with the king of Assyria. He goes directly to the source. In that process, that buffer zone, both Samaria and Syria are going to be conquered by the Assyrians who are going to expand their territory and then ultimately come down on Jerusalem even though they take areas of The southern kingdom, they take some cities of Judah, they establish some fronts there in Jerusalem, but they can't quite conquer it altogether. It takes the Babylonians to do that. But part of the reason the Babylonians are able to do that is because the Assyrians have been whipping up on them for a while. And all of this is completely in God's purview. All of this is God punishing his people. So at that time, verse 6 says, Rezin, king of Aram, recovered Elath for Aram and cleared the Judeans out of Elath entirely. And the Arameans came to Elath and they have lived there until this very day. Verse 7 So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, who is the king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and deliver me from the hand of the king of Aram and from the hand of the king of Israel, who are rising up against me. So the way to get rid of the Syrian encroachment, the way to get rid of the Israel encroachment is to make a deal with the Assyrians because they're the major power in the area And now, instead of trusting God that God is going to deliver them, as he has so often done, instead of trusting that God would take care of his people, the king is actually making deals with foreign kings and saying, you come protect us now. But wait, it gets worse, because once he sees the kind of worship that the king of Assyria is engaged in, he's going to try to copy it. And do the same thing. So he's completely going the opposite direction of the proper worship of Yahweh, the God who has delivered them out of Egypt and taken them into the promised land. He has now so corrupted the people of Israel that they are worshiping their foreign gods and making deals with foreign kings. And on top of that, he's going to take gold and silver out of the temple and give it to the king of Assyria. So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and deliver me from the hand of the king of Aram and from the hand of the king of Israel, who are rising up against me. And Ahaz took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house and sent a present to the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria listened to him, and the king of Assyria went up against Damascus. That's the capital of the Arameans, the capital of Syria. And he captured it, and he carried the people away into exile to Kerr, and he put resin to death. Now King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet tiglath king of Assyria, and he saw the altar which was at Damascus and king Ahaz sent to Urijah the priest the pattern of the altar and its model according to all its workmanship so Urijah the priest built an altar according to all that king Ahaz had sent from Damascus and thus Urijah the priest made it before the coming of king Ahaz from Damascus so He goes into Damascus, he meets with the king of Assyria while he's there, because the king of Assyria has just routed Damascus. Apparently, he's up there congratulating him, forming that bond even closer, paying him a whole lot of money, and while he's there, he sees the kind of altar that the foreigners are worshiping on. Now, in the temple of God in Jerusalem, the one that was built by Solomon God approved that temple, and God was very specific about the furnishings and about the altar and about the labor of cleansing and the table of showbread and about the holiest of holies and about the Ark of the Covenant and how those things were supposed to be placed and how the worship was supposed to be conducted. And now he's taken the model of a foreign king, an altar that was dedicated to the worship of foreign gods, And he is sent to the priest back in Jerusalem and said, make me one of these. The priests were so industrious that they had it done by the time their king returned. And here's what he did with it. So Uriah the priest built an altar according to all that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus. And thus Uriah the priest made it before the coming of King Ahaz from Damascus. And when the king came from Damascus, the king saw the altar. Then the king approached the altar and went up to it. And he burned his burnt offerings and his meal offering. And he poured his libation and sprinkled the blood of his peace offering on that altar. It was supposed to be on the altar dedicated with blood, the blood of the covenant for Yahweh's worship. But now he's even worshiping on a foreign altar. In a moment, he's going to move the altar that belonged to Yahweh because he likes his altar so much. So he's going step by step into greater and greater apostasy against the things that God had approved. And the bronze altar, verse 14, which was before the Lord, he brought from the front of the house, from between his altar and the house of the Lord, and he put it on the north side of his altar. So he replaced it with his altar. He liked his better. He didn't like that one God gave him. He liked his better. And King Ahaz commanded Urijah the priest, saying, Upon the great altar, this new altar, burn the morning burnt offering, the evening meal offering. And the king's burnt offering and his meal offering with the burnt offering of all the people of the land and their meal offering and their libations and sprinkle on it the blood of the burnt offering and all the blood of the sacrifice. In other words, I want all the worship that goes on in this temple from now on to be on this altar that is designed for foreign gods. So not only is he worshiping after foreign gods, but he wants all the people to follow him in the worship of foreign gods. So even their sacrifices and their offerings have to end up on this abominable altar. And then just to give God his due. But the bronze altar shall be for me to inquire by. When I want to inquire. Put a sacrifice, I'll use the bronze altar for that, because that's directly involved with God, but everything else we're going to do on my new altar. So Urijah the priest did according to all that King Ahaz commanded, and then King Ahaz cut off the borders of the stands, and remove the laver from them. What you have to understand about this is that God had a laver of cleansing, a place where the priests were supposed to wash before they went in and did the ceremonial work inside the temple. And it was set on a particular stand. It was dedicated to God during the time of Solomon, and God approved of this design. Well, he decided that since the foreign lavers sat on the ground, he was going to take away the undergirding, the suspension, and just set it on the ground like the foreigners did. So King Ahaz cut off the borders of the stands and he removed the laver from them. He also took down the the sea, the portion of water, from the bronze oxen that were up under it and put it on the pavement of stone. And the covered way for the Sabbath, that's probably a a sort of awning to keep the king out of the direct sun when he comes up to the temple. That covered way for the Sabbath, which they had built in the house, and the outer entry for the king, that was an entry that only the king could use to go into the temple, he removed those from the house of the Lord. Why? Because of the king of Assyria. So now we know why he's doing it. He's making all these massive changes to the worship of God in the temple at Jerusalem so that he can gratify the king of Assyria by saying, Oh, you worship that God? Oh, me too. Oh, you have that kind of word? Oh, me too. I'm in with all your gods and that Yahweh thing, that's not that important. So then we read the rest of the acts of Ahaz, which he did. Are they not written in the books of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Ahaz slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David, and his son Hezekiah reigned in his place. We'll talk about Hezekiah next week. Turn to chapter 28 of 2 Chronicles. Because now we're going to have even more of these blanks filled in by the chronicler who's going to tell us more about what bad King Ahaz did. And all of this is preparing you, getting you ready, setting up the prophecy that we're going to see in Isaiah. The more that you know about King Ahaz, and the more that you know about the way that the king of the Arameans and the king of the northern tribes in Samaria and the way that they came down on him and the way that God protected Jerusalem the city where he placed his own name the more you understand about that the more you're going to understand Isaiah 7 when we get there so yes this is still introduction we're now in chapter 28 of 2nd Chronicles Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king And he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord as David, his father, had done. But he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He also made molten images for the Baals. Okay, here's something we didn't know before. He's also making... Images that the people will worship that are dedicated, idols that are dedicated to foreign gods. Now, this is something that God was very precise about, very clear about. It's even the first of 10 commandments. The very words of the covenant, on the stones of the covenant, in the Ark of the Covenant start with, you will have no other gods before me. I'm the God. And now he's not only engaging in the worship of other gods, but he actually has foreign idols dedicated to the Baals. So that's two commandments he's violating, right? Yeah, don't make any graven image. And I'm betting he doesn't stop there. He did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord as David, his father, had done. But he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. And he also made molten images for the baals. Moreover, he burned incense in the valley of Ben-Hinnom and burned his sons in the fire according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had driven out before the sons of Israel. Let's talk about the valley of the sons of Hinnom for just a moment. My translation calls them Ben-Hinnom. It means sons of Hinnom just like Ben-Hur would mean son of Hur. So the Valley of Hinnom, that area was known as Gehenna, which Jesus used as an object lesson in order to say that Sheol, hell, is going to be like the Valley of Hinnom. Now, what you need to know about the Valley of Hinnom is not only was there Huge abomination in the Valley of Hinnom, but eventually it became a dumping ground, (coughs) you'll excuse me for this, but for human excrement, because when you don't have plumbing, which they didn't have in Israel, and you have a couple million people then you've got to have somewhere to dump the waste. You've got to have somewhere to put the dead bodies. You've got to have some... And so the Valley of Hinnom was a place that was on fire, and it was always on fire. It was constantly on fire as the methane burned off and as the animal carcasses burned up. And so there were maggots in the fire and in the waste. And so Jesus pointed at that and said, that's what it's going to be like when this life is over If I'm not your redeemer, if I'm not the intercessor between you and God, then hell is going to be for you a place where the fire is never quenched and where the worm never sleeps. That's the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom. So I just threw that in because it's an interesting connection to the New Testament. Moreover, he burned incense in the Valley of Ben-Hinnom and burned his sons with fire according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had driven out before the sons of Israel. And he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. Wherefore, because of that, because he was like that, because he did those things, wherefore, the Lord his God delivered him into the hand of the king of Aram, And they defeated him, and they carried away from him a great number of captives, and brought them to Damascus. And he was also delivered into the hand of the king of Israel, who inflicted him with heavy casualties. For Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, slew in Judah 120,000 in one day. And notice it's God who did that. It's God who brought down these armies in order to punish his people. Now, this is really interesting because we see this all the way through the Old Testament. We certainly see it in the New Testament. And we see it in the eschatological portions of the New Testament that God is going to bring a particular leader. We call him Antichrist or Little Horn, depending on who you're reading. But, but God, again, in the course of human history, is in charge of the political upheavals and machinations that take place, and they all center around his people. How are his people worshiping him? How are his people praising him and staying devoted and dedicated to him? And when he needs to correct them, he doesn't intervene directly, though sometimes he does. Sometimes he just opens up the earth and swallows people. Sometimes he sends poisonous snakes in. Sometimes he just sends a flood. But as often as not, he sends foreign armies in to punish his people. So it's still all about Israel, his people. When we get to Isaiah 10, which we won't get to tonight, hopefully we'll get to it next week, we see that God was in charge of the fact that the Assyrians came down on the uh, northern tribes and took Israel out of their land. And so God takes credit For using the king of Assyria as the weapon that he's going to to utilize in order to punish his people. But then the king of Assyria, because he thinks that he's doing it in his own might, in his own strength, in his own haughtiness, after he has accomplished taking all the Israelites out of their land... God then says, I don't like the haughty way that you did that. And now I'm going to punish you for the way that you punished my people, though I used you to punish my people. So again, this is all just God sovereignly making sure that the people of earth are accomplishing the things that play into his ultimate desire, his ultimate plan. And he's always in charge. And you have to remember that when you go to the voting booth. And you look down and go, Trump or Hillary? Regardless of how that comes out, God is still in charge. Today, of all people, for a short period of time, I happened to have Rush Limbaugh on my radio while I was in the car. In the very moment that he said, I don't want to hear about this. I don't want phone calls about this. I don't want anybody to call about it. We're not going to discuss it. But I'm going to pose this question. Do you think that God punishes nations when they turn their back on him? He said that today on the radio it's becoming that obvious and if America's not careful God will use and we certainly know from Daniel and Revelation we know that there are going to be invading and marauding armies into Israel again and then there's going to be a worldwide war and, and all kinds of problems well that's, that's God sovereignly making sure that the people who have turned their back on him are going to pay a price and so logic would just tell you Get on God's side. Mm. Follow God. He's in charge. He's the one that's right. He's the one that's righteous and holy. And he's the one that is going to dole out punishment. And you see it time and time and time again in this book. Mm. And yet there are people who say, I believe the Bible. But they don't believe that God acts this way. Mm. And he acts every bit this way. Unless you have somebody standing in the gap for you. Mm. Unless you have a redeemer. Unless you have a go-between between you and a righteous holy God. That's the only way to make it okay. That's why in this background, in this history, that's why Israel needed a Messiah. Okay, so wherefore the Lord his God delivered him into the hand of the king of Aram, and they defeated him and carried away from him a great number of captives and brought them to Damascus. And he was also delivered into the hand of the king of Israel who afflicted him with heavy casualties for Pekah the son of Ramaliah slew in Judah 120,000 in one day all valiant men because they had forsaken the Lord God of their fathers. That's why this is happening. So then he says, And Zikri, a mighty man of Ephraim, slew Maasiah the king's son, and Azrechim, who is the ruler of the house, and Elkanah, the second to the king. And the sons of Israel carried away captive of their brethren 200,000 women, sons and daughters, and took also a great deal of spoil from them, and they brought the spoil to Samaria. But a prophet of the Lord was there, whose name was Oded, And he went out to meet the army which came to Samaria, and he said to them, Behold, because the Lord, the God of your fathers, was angry with Judah, he has delivered them into your hand. And you have slain them in rage, which has even reached to heaven. And now you are proposing to subjugate for yourselves the people of Judah and Jerusalem for male and female slaves. Surely, do you have transgressions of your own against the Lord your God? Now, think about what he's saying. You are taking your brethren. You're not taking foreigners. You're taking your brethren who you're going to subjugate to be slaves to you. But think about what you're doing. Doesn't God have something against you too? Can't God just as easily find wrong with you? Now, therefore, listen to me and return the captives whom you have captured from your brothers. For the burning anger of the Lord is against you. So then some of the heads of Ephraim, Azariah, the son of Johanan, Berachiah the son of meshalamoth Jehizkiah the son of Shalom. I'm just glad these names have fallen out of popular use. I'm just glad we don't name our children and grandchildren this. And Amasa the son of Hadlai, arose against those who were coming from the battle and said to them, you must not bring the captives here for you are proposing to bring upon us guilt against the Lord, adding to our sins and to our guilt for our guilt is great so that his burning anger is against Israel. So the armed men left the captives and the spoil before the officers and all the assembly. And then the men, who were designated by name arose and took the captives and they clothed all their naked ones from the spoil and they gave them clothes and sandals and fed them and gave them drink and anointed them with oil and led their feeble ones on donkeys and brought them to Jericho the city of palm trees to their brothers and then they returned to Samaria okay so Here's the story so far. There's a warfare going on between the northern and the southern tribes. This is important because later when you see Ezekiel, when he is told that he's going to take two sticks in his hand and he's going to write on one of them for Judah, all the sons of Jerusalem, and the other one he's going to write for for Joseph, the stick of Joseph and all his sons of Israel, and that he's going to take these two sticks and he's going to hold them in his hand together. And when people say, what does this mean, say This is what God is saying, someday I'm going to remove the enmity between them. One day they're going to dwell together as brethren, as a nation. And so this enmity that has led to warfare between them, even to the point of taking each other as slaves is yet again one more thing that God has to accomplish in order for the Bible to be true. I want you to see how bad the enmity was. They hated each other. They're at war with each other. They're taking each other as slaves. And yet, God says, the day is coming when they're all going to get along. They're all going to be back together in their land, northern kingdom, southern kingdom, all 12 tribes, the greater son of David, Jesus himself, is going to rule over them from Jerusalem, that has to happen, or the Bible's not true. So then, we're starting at verse 16. At that time, King Ahaz sent to the kings of Assyria for help. For again, the Edomites had come and attacked Judah and carried them away captive. And the Philistines also had invaded the city of the lowland and all of the Negev of Judah. And they had taken Beth and Ajalon and off, and Soco, and its villages, Timnah with its villages, and Gimzo with its villages, and they had settled there. Why? Verse 19, For the Lord humbled Judah because of Ahaz, king of Israel, for he had brought about a lack of restraint in Judah And was very unfaithful to the Lord. So again, now we're talking about Philistines. And we're talking about Edomites. And we're talking about all of them having an incursion against Judah. And even that, the writer of 2 Kings says, God did this. And he had a good cause. And he had a good reason for doing this. Because they were unfaithful to him. Verse 20. So Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria came against him and afflicted him instead of strengthening him. And although Ahaz took a portion out of the house of the Lord and out of the palace of the king and of the princes and had given it to the king of Assyria, it did not help him. No, because when you're the king of Assyria, you're out to conquer. That's the whole point. Again, when we get to Isaiah 10 and we read a little bit about the mind of the Assyrian king, he didn't think he was serving God. He thought that he was out there being a conquering king. And so once he had the gold and once he had the silver, he then turned on the king of Judah. And so now in that time of his distress, verse 22, now in the time of his distress, this same king Ahaz became yet more unfaithful to the Lord. So he's set up his foreign altar, he's taken money out of the temple, he's given it to a foreign king, he's worshipping a foreign king, he thinks he's finally bought himself and aligned it with the king of Assyria, and the king of Assyria takes his money and turns on him anyway. And what does he do? What he should do in that time and place, knowing all that history, knowing everything God has done for Israel, knowing the covenant that he's made with Israel, he ought to go to God and repent and cry out. So, what does he do? Turns his back on God all the more. Verse 23: For he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus, which had defeated him, because he said, This is his thinking, because the gods of the kings of Aram helped them, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. Okay, the writer of 2 Kings has said, The reason that the Arameans were able to do what they did was because God, Yahweh, brought them down on you. And Ahaz so completely misread it that he said, it's because the gods of the kings of Aram did it. And since the gods of the kings of Aram have accomplished this conquering of my people, I better worship the gods of Aram. It can't get much worse. But wait, it does. Because the gods of the kings of Aram helped them, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. But they became the downfall of him and all Israel. So what can we glean from this? Clearly, God is real serious about his worship. Clearly, he is real serious that if he has made a covenant with his people, they don't mix and match that with other gods or other forms of worship. I don't have time to go too far into this, but there is a great deal of foreign worship that is infiltrating the modern church. There are websites like the Museum of Idolatry, and all they put on it is video of church services going on in America right now. And they're bringing all kinds of Gnostic things in and contemplative prayer and all these these Eastern religions and all that. And it's not that they've abandoned, at least in their mind, it's not that they've abandoned God and Christianity. They've taken God and Christianity and they've improved it. They've just added a little bit of other forms of worship, other gods, other ideas. Unbiblical ideas. And they think it's okay. That's an encroachment against God. It was an encroachment back here with Ahaz. It's an encroachment today. The worship of God needs to be according to what God has established. And I think we can prove that by the fact that all the way back in this covenant that he made with Israel, he was very precise about how it was that they approached him, how they were going to worship him, what furniture, what tent. What holy of holies, what day of the year they were going to come in, how they were going to do their sacrifices, where they were going to sprinkle the blood, what the priest had to be wearing. God was very specific about how you worship him, how you approach him. And you get to the New Testament, and it's all about Christ. Christ is the center of our religion. Christianity is utterly Christocentric, and there's nowhere in the New Testament where you can find worship Christ And something else. Instead, we need to make sure that when we are worshiping Christ, we're worshiping in league with, in line with, what the Bible actually prescribes as the proper worship of God. Does that make sense? Am I alone up here? Okay. Okay, we're almost done with this chapter. Verse 24. Well, verse 23, he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus, which had defeated him. And he said, because the gods of the kings of Aram helped them, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. But they became the downfall of him and all of Israel. And moreover, when Ahaz gathered together the utensils of the house of God, these are not just any utensils. These are utensils that have been sanctified with the blood of sacrificial animals as part of the covenant made with God. These are utensils that belong to God. When Babylon, under Nebuchadnezzar, conquered Jerusalem and routed the temple, they also carried away cups and goblets and many of the furnishings of the temple and took them back to Babylon and one night, Belshazzar decided in the midst of his feast that he was just going to call for the utensils that actually belonged to Yahweh. And they bring them out, and he starts eating and drinking with them. And a hand ends up writing on the wall, a disconnected hand writing on the wall, many, many, takele you farsin. And it's even translated for us. You've been weighed in the balances, and you've been found wanting. Eupharson, that word Eupharson has at the root of it persians and that night while he's throwing his party the persians are coming up under the wall of babylon and babylon is going to fall to the persians and as that's happening they're busy using utensils that belong to god so if something has been consecrated to god sanctified for the worship of god you don't give those to the king of assyria well, here, it says it this way. Moreover, when Ahaz gathered together the utensils from the house of God, he cut the utensils of the house of God into pieces. And he closed the door of the house of the Lord. And he made altars for himself in every corner of Jerusalem. And in every city of Judah, he made high places to burn incense to other gods. And he provoked the Lord, the God of his fathers, to anger. Now the rest of the acts and all his ways from first to last, behold, they are written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. So Ahaz slept with his fathers and they buried him in the city in Jerusalem, for they did not bring him into the tombs of the kings of Israel. And Hezekiah, his son, reigned in his place. Good. I've got 10 minutes. Go to the book of Isaiah, because now, now you can understand Isaiah 7 because this is the exact period of time in which Isaiah appears prophesying primarily to the southern kingdom, but he also, in the early part of the book, prophesies to the northern kingdom. And this is fascinating. I said all of that to get you ready for Isaiah 7. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 1, now it came about in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the king, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Aram, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but they could not conquer it. Okay, we're talking about the same thing that we've been talking about in 2 Kings 16 tonight. We're talking about this period of time, the early 700s, 735, 730, right in about there. 700 years before Jesus is on the planet. Keep that in mind. This is about 700 years before Jesus is on the planet. And when it was reported to the house of David saying, the Arameans have encamped in Ephraim. This is when they were uh, making their agreements with each other. Now the Arameans, the Syrians are camping in Ephraim. So his heart and the hearts of the people shook as the winds of the forest shake with the wind. Now the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out now and meet Ahaz, you and your son, Sheer Jashub, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. By the way, notice that God knew exactly where the king was. Even as the king's making all these deals, even as the king is making arrangements and making compatriots out of enemy nations that are worshiping foreign gods and trying to conquer their nation, God knows exactly where he is. Says to Isaiah, go meet him and I'll tell you exactly where you're going to meet up with him. At the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the Fuller's Field. And sure enough, that's where Isaiah finds him. Wasn't that lucky? God got so lucky there. Say to him this. Take care and be calm. Have no fear and do not be faint-hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands. He's talking about the two kings, the kings of the Arameans and the king of Israel. He says, They are two smoldering firebrands on account of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram, the son of Ramaliah. Because Aram, with Ephraim and the son of Ramaliah, has planned evil against you, saying, Let's go up against Judah and terrorize it and make for ourselves a breach in its walls. And set up the son of Tabiel as the king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. The same way that the king of Assyria is going to make encroachments, going to take some of the cities of Judah, but cannot take Jerusalem. As I said earlier, it's not until Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the time of Jeremiah, time of Daniel, it's not until then that God is going to turn over Judah. To those kings. Why is God making a differentiation between the northern tribes and the southern tribes? Well, because he has a covenant that he's made with David where he has said, There will always be a son of yours sitting on your throne, ruling over the people of Israel. And ever since the time of Jacob, leaning on his staff, prophesying over his 12 sons, he says that the Messiah shiloh is going to come out of the tribe of judah and so there has to still be judahites remaining intact in order for messiah to be born in bethlehem where micah predicted he was going to be born god has already made all these promises god has already said what the future is going to be in advance and so he's protecting his people not because his people are being good but because he's so faithful to his word Because he has said he's going to do these things, he has to maintain Judah. He can take those northern ten tribes into the Assyrian captivity and then up through the Caucasus mountains and spread them out and scatter them. He can do that for all of history until God returns his attention to Israel. But Judah is separate. To this very day, right now, as I speak, you can find a Jew. You can find a descendant of Judah judah has to be maintained now if he lets assyria conquer judah then judah is going to be scattered the same way that the northern tribes are but they can't be because of the promises god has made and then tells isaiah in advance 150 years in advance that it's going to be the king of persia and then names him by name that it's going to be the king of Persia who is going to allow the people to come back and rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And that's why, even though he let Babylon conquer the southern kingdom, he then let the Persians conquer Babylon so that Cyrus would be the king in Babylon where his people were, so he could send them back to Judah so that Jesus could be born. You get that? Impressive. Yeah, impressive. Impressive. I just want you to see God is in control of human history because that's reassuring when you're in the midst of the kind of political upheaval that we're in. And when the world looks so crazy as it does right now, God's still in control. He's bringing about his ultimate end. He's doing the things that he said he would do. So we got to read. We got to go fast. So the Lord said to Isaiah, this is verse 3, Go out now and meet Ahaz, you and your son, Shir Jashub, at the end of the conduit, at the upper pool, on the highway, to the fuller's field, and say to him, Take care and be calm, have no fear, and do not be faint-hearted, because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands, on account of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram, the son of Ramaliah, because Aram, with Ephraim and the sons of Ramaliah, "...has planned evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrorize it, and make for ourselves a breach in its walls, and let us set up the son of Tabiel, the king, in the midst of it. And thus says the Lord your God, It shall not stand, nor will it come to pass. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is this king Rezin. Now within another 65 years... Ephraim will be shattered so that it is no longer even a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramaliah. And if you do not believe, you surely will not last. Okay, so Ahaz does not believe. And now he's told something astounding. Because he's the king of Jerusalem, Because he's the king of Judah, ruling in the place where God chose to place his name, even though he's an unbeliever, even though everything we've read about him is bad, 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 bad. Foreign gods and foreign worship and foreign altars and molten images to the bales and sending your children to the fire. I mean, bad. Everything about him is bad. Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz because he is king of Judah. The Lord spoke again to Ahaz. Through Isaiah saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it deep as Sheol or high as heaven. So King Ahaz, though he is evil, is told, You're going to be delivered. I know it's going to look bad. I know that it looks like you're overwhelmed by the armies. Remember what we read. There were, what, 120,000 conquered in a day? Killed in a day? I know it's going to look bad. But he's not going to prevail. And so... Let me give you a sign. I'll give you a sign to guarantee that that's not going to happen. Ask for a sign. And Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Now, I have to assume that Ahaz kind of put his fingers in his lapels and kind of stood back and thought, man, I am doing good now. I won't even test the Lord. Except that what you're going to find out in a minute is if God says do it, you do it. Then he said to him, Listen now, O house of David. Okay, this is one reason why this is happening. He's one of the descendants of the house of David. He's part of the Davidic covenant. He is a bad and evil king, but God is protecting his people. Listen now, O house of David. Is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will also try the patience of my God? It's one thing that you've done all this to the people you rule over. But now the fact that God has said, choose a sign, make it as high as heaven or as low as Sheol. And you said, no, you're just tempting God. Well, God, because he's determined to give a sign anyway, decides for himself what the sign is going to be. And the sign is 700 years off. And he says. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Now, just so you know, this is about Jesus. In Matthew one twenty-three, Matthew picks up that very quote in order to say, that's what Isaiah predicted. This is a messianic promise that God makes to the children of Israel which is why Jesus is called the Redeemer of Israel. And the reason that he came to the planet was to be the Redeemer of Israel who had been scattered and had been put away by God and who had gone into all these captivities and All of that was God punishing them. But notice this very, very important thing. I I don't care if you hear nothing else tonight. Notice this one very important thing. From the minute that God made a covenant with them, God will not lose them. Hmm. As bad as they are, as awful as they are, as terrible as they are, God won't lose them. They're his people. He's made them a promise. They're in covenant with him. He's going to punish them. He's going to correct them. Isn't that what the writer of Hebrews talks about? Whom the Lord loves, he chastens and he scourges every son he receives. And then he admits, no chastening is pleasant for the time being, but it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. This is how God works. He doesn't lose his people. He corrects his people. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son and will call his name Emmanuel. Now that word in the Hebrew can mean virgin but it can also mean for a young girl is going to have a child and so there are writers who have said this may actually apply to the child that is born to isaiah we're going to read about him in just a moment because look at the next promise he will eat curds and honey at the time that he knows enough to refuse evil And choose good. So by the time he's conscious of his own actions, by then he will be eating curds and honey, for before the boy will know enough to refuse the good and choose the evil, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. Okay, now that's before 700 years. So, gosh, I'm running out of time. So that introduces us to the theological concept of prophecies and you can see plenty of them in the bible that have an immediate fulfillment and also have a long-term fulfillment you can see god speaking of the day of the lord in in immediate consequences to israel that god brings the various enemies of israel down on them in order to accomplish his fierce wrath but When doing that, he also refers to a final day of the Lord, a final time when he is going to pour out his wrath on all the nations of the earth, starting with Israel, starting at Judah. And so that's what we know as the day of the Lord eschatologically. So that's the ultimate fulfillment of it, but we see it foreshadowed time and time again in events that took place in history. Get it? Okay, so look at chapter 8. The Lord said to me, take for yourself a large tablet and write on it in ordinary letters. Write, swift is the booty, speedy is the prey. And I will take for myself faithful witnesses for testimony, Uriah the priest and Zechariah, the son of Jeberachiah. So I approached the prophetess, that's his wife, and she conceived and she gave birth to a son. And then the Lord said to me, name him Maher Shalal Hashbaz. For before the boy knows how to cry out, My father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. So there's the immediate, instant fulfillment of what God is predicting that this child is going to be born to you, and before he even knows how to choose the good and the evil I'm going to use the king of Assyria to conquer these two kings that you're so worried about. But then he also said there's going to be a child born to a virgin and his name is going to be God with us. And that's not the name that was given to Isaiah's child. By the way, as we continue to work through this chapter, which we won't do tonight, the land of Israel is referred to, well, look at verse 8. It's referred to, oh, spread your wings and fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. So you're going to call this child Emmanuel, who's born of a virgin, and the land of Israel is the land of Emmanuel. It's not just the property of God, it's not just the place that God placed his name, it's also the place that belongs to God with us. That's why he's going to rule from Jerusalem. Are you getting all this? Mm -hmm. I know you're going to have to go home and listen to the tape again. I get it. But all I want you to see is that this moment in time... Is recorded by Isaiah. This is the early 700s. This is, this is earth shattering. This is the time when God is delivering the northern kingdom into the Assyrian captivity. The southern kingdom should have seen how God punished the northern kingdom. They should have repented and changed their ways. They didn't. And God's going to bring Babylon down on them. And God is in charge of every bit of this, not only because the writers of second Kings and second Chronicles say so, but also because he sends them a prophet, he sends them Isaiah. And Isaiah says this is happening because God is angry at you for chasing after your foreign gods and for not following his law and making God the leader of your nation. And so anything that is said this often in the Bible, I say wake up and pay attention. God is saying something. Yes, it's history. Yes, it's prophecy. But it also tells you what God's like. And God is very, very jealous for his people. He'll correct them. He'll keep them. He won't lose them. But he will correct them. I I heard a pastor many years ago say, I've quoted this before. He said, it's one thing to stop running into a brick wall because it hurts. It's another thing to figure out where the wall is. And it took me a lot of years to figure out what that meant, because it sounded deep and heavy, and a lot of people went, hmm, and stroked their beards and went, oh, this is very good, what he just said. And then one day I realized it's one thing for people to stop beating their head against the brick wall of God's absoluteness and just figure out that's where the wall is. Just adhere to the fact that the wall of God's absoluteness exists and quit beating your head against it because you're going to run into it time and time and time again. And if you rebel against him, you're going to run into it in the most terrible of ways. So that's King Ahaz. (laughs) That's the Ahaz story. Next week, Judah gets a good king. Yay. And so we'll read about good King Hezekiah next week. I shudder to ask, are there questions about that? (laughs) Who says the Bible's boring? (laughs) The Bible's just so exciting. When you get how all the pieces fit and it all goes together, I'm just fascinated by it. Anything else? Okay, then I'm going to let you go home. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this evening. I know that I haven't begun to do justice to your word. I know that it is much deeper and much wider than what I'm able to fit in in one night. But I hope that in looking at King Ahaz, we have some sense of how sovereign you are, how faithful you are. So keep us worshiping you aright. Correct us when we need correcting. Steer us, turn us, keep us in the way. Guide and protect us until you take us all the way home. We pray this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.